You never know how something as small as turning on the faucet in your house could be impacting something hundreds of miles away. In fact, it seems kind of implausible that this faucet here in Atlanta, Georgia, could have anything to do with this oysterman in Florida. Everyone needs a share of the water, but we're at the end of the pipeline, you know, and our share is not what it needs to be. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini, and today the story of a place built on seafood and how a threat to that seafood has ended up with a Supreme Court lawsuit, the prospect of lost jobs, and a town wrangling with its identity. So I'm standing on a little patch of beach right on the edge of Apalachicola Bay. And if you had any question about what makes up the identity of this place, you just have to look at some of the signage around town. Drive around Franklin County, which is tucked into the curve of Florida's panhandle, and the dominant industry here becomes very clear. Here's Lynn's Quality Oysters. East Point, oysters since 1848. That's the town sign. There's a giant pile of oyster shells on the side right there. There is oyster bones, delicious dog biscuits. Yes, even the pet food here is named after oysters. There's a sign for Oyster Radio, W-O-Y-S 100.5 FM, the best shucking station on radio. Hello, everybody. This is Jimmy Buffett, and you're listening to W-O-Y-S Oyster Radio 100.5. Keep tonging out there, boys. Apalachicola was built on oysters. This has always been a fishing community, and... I think, I want to believe that's what it'll always be. That's Ricky Banks. He's lived here his whole life, all 44 years. My grandfather was an oysterman, my great-grandfather, and my dad. I have two brothers. They both oystered. I have two sisters. They both shucked. My mom shucked oysters. My grandparents. When you first meet Ricky, you could take the gruffness of his voice and the broadness of his build, oh, and maybe the camo shirt and pit bull tattoo, and you could think he's all tough but you should listen to the way he talks about his sons. Ricky named his older son River. Yes, River Banks. And he wanted to name the younger one Creek, but his wife wouldn't have it, so they settled on Tyler. On his cell phone, Ricky shows me a photo of one son with an alligator, its mouth spread wide. That's my youngest. How old is he? He's 15. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And let's see. (laughs) Where where were you guys? You just found a gator? No, we had... We do gator hunts and hog hunts. There's my oldest boy. There's my boys with flounders that we call. Seafood, the catching of it for work and for pleasure. It infuses every aspect of Ricky and his family's life. He started his boys on it young, just like his dad had with him. I remember going out on the boat as young as probably five, six years old and just messing around with the shells and picking the oysters out that were single, you know, and throwing them in the can. So I've been on the water my whole life. That's a typical way of growing up in this part of Florida, where the harbors are still crowded with working fishing boats instead of vacationers' yachts. For a long time, this place has been known as Florida's Forgotten Coast because it's felt like a place set apart, an older, less developed version of the state. But Ricky says more than any other moment in his life, the thing that all of this is built on is starting to feel fragile. By far, in my 44 years of being here, this is the worst the bay's ever been. Our bay is just in such, such trouble. You know, we're only getting so many bags, there's no small oysters. I've raised my youngin here on this bay, and I thought it was my God-given right to be able to fish and oyster and 
how it was five years ago is not like it is today. Mm -hmm. What it was 20 years ago was a far cry, but it's progressively getting worse every year. To understand what's happening in Apalachicola Bay now and why folks are so worried about it, you have to understand what it was like those years ago, back during the glory days of the bay. Historically, this water has had some of the most productive oyster beds in the country. The taste of those oysters made Apalachicola famous, their lovely, mellow saltiness. When I first started oystering, I seen a man and his two sons go over and catch 80 and 90 wheelbars. That is oysterman A.L. Quick, measuring oyster loads in wheelbarrows. I'm talking about wheelbars, just hand stacked. All they can stack on 80 and 90 wheelbars a day. They do it the old-fashioned way here, harvesting oysters with tongs, which look like giant rakes fit together like scissors. Oystermen like Mr. Quick stand in their boat and reach down into the water to the oyster beds, scraping and scooping up oysters with their tongs. The days of dozens of wheelbarrows full of oysters are long distant now. The oyster stocks have been in decline for a while, but you could still get a decent crop working Apalachicola Bay. That is, until something happened in the fall of 2012. So in September 2012, the oyster population crashed. This is Carl Havens. Carl is a scientist at the University of Florida, which means when an oyster population crashes, he's almost like the detective called to the crime scene. So one of the things that we did is we, we dug through all of the old records that the agencies had been collecting on the oyster population. And they, they both showed kind of the same thing, that there's, there's a variability and it goes up and down. But then in September 2012, it dropped precipitously, you know, almost off the chart down to hardly anything within, you know, one month. It was an alarming drop. There were already a couple of University of Florida scientists working in Apalachicola Bay testing seafood after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, making sure nothing was amiss. So the university decided to put together a team to look at what was happening with this sudden collapse. The data they had ruled out the oil spill itself. That was two years earlier, and no oil had come near this part of the coast. It's the kind of pattern you see of something suddenly got hit by a disease or some other thing very quickly. And that held a clue. At one point, the scientists held a community meeting in Apalachicola. And it, that was interesting because initially the, um, everyone wanted to talk about really just uh, one thing. We need more water. We need more water. You know, we need more water. Now that might seem like a funny request coming from people who live on the coast. But the key is what kind of water? Fresh water. The southeast was in the middle of an intense drought. It was the driest that it had been. That was it. So the, the watershed, which is the area that drains water into the river, was the driest area in the United States for two years in a row. I know you're thinking, oysters live in salt water, right? Why the heck would a drought matter to them? So you have to know a little bit about how oysters work. They like to live in places with brackish water. Not extremely fresh water, like a river or a lake. Not real salty like the ocean, but kind of in between. So they live in the estuaries where those two mix together. So the bay here is an estuary fed by the Apalachicola River. And the year of the drought? That river was at its lowest level in the 89 years they'd been keeping record of water flow. So what happened was when the river flow stopped, it became really low, and the bay became as salty as the Gulf of Mexico, um, things came in from the Gulf of Mexico. Um, crabs, conchs, um, some other kind of shell-dwelling things called whelks, 
about seven or eight different things that eat oysters. And they came in and they just had a feast on the oysters. Normally, those critters would have to stay out in the Gulf because they need the water to be really salty. But that changed without fresh water coming from the river to the bay. So it was like a perfect storm of things that are naturally there, but they usually aren't in the bay. And they were able to come in because of the high salinity, and they probably wiped out the oyster population. Here's where it gets more complicated, though. It wasn't just the drought that was making for lower water flow of the Apalachicola River. It was Georgia. Yeah, a little town called Helen, Georgia is where the Chattahoochee actually starts. And all total, we have over 900 miles of river that are eventually emptying out into the bay. I'm looking at a map with a guy who has another awesome name, Gibby Conrad. I have run an eco-tour business in Apalachicola for about 17 or 18 years, and I've just recently started as an educator here at Apalachicola National Estuarine Research Reserve. Which is a mouthful. We're outside the visitor's center at the reserve, just feet from the blue waters of Apalachicola Bay. The reserve itself is pretty impressive. 250,000 acres of protected land. It's part of what makes this area of Florida so rural. A lot of the land is reserve. You can't build anything on it. Gibby says this place feels pretty far from Atlanta. I mean, I've, I've talked to people before people from Atlanta that actually own a vacation house on St. George Island and did not realize that the Chattahoochee wound up in Apalachicola Bay. And it's just what you were saying. It seems so far away until somebody points it out to you. You don't necessarily realize that it is all connected. To show me how it is connected, Gibby threads his finger along the thin blue lines on the map that represent water. The watershed incorporates three rivers. This is the Flint. Mm -hmm. This is the Chattahoochee. And then the Apalachicola River makes up the bottom basically 106 miles of the system. So things that happen way far north of us do affect us down here. It's all eventually coming this way. And the vast majority of the floodplain is actually in Georgia. If you look around the world at estuaries and river systems, you will find that we are close to repeating a scenario that has gone on over and over and over again. Dan Tonsmeyer is the Apalachicola River Keeper. He's lived on the bay since 1982, and before becoming the River Keeper, he worked at the Water Management District for 15 years. He's been thinking about the flow of water in this part of Florida for a long time, which he says you need to do to get a sense of how things have changed. We need to go back and, and do sort of a comparison before the dams and before Atlanta grew to a huge metropolis. Back in the 1950s, the Army Corps of Engineers built the Buford Dam, in part for hydroelectric power, but it ended up helping to provide drinking water for the city of Atlanta. Over time, the metro area's population has grown, along with farmers using water for agriculture and a variety of other uses. Dan says during the dry periods, you can see how much of a difference those upstream demands make just standing on the riverbank. So you're getting say in the neighborhood of 30 to 40 percent less flow during the dry times. And that would equate to a four to six foot difference in elevation on the riverbank. But more, if you are familiar with the river, you see the change in the number of fish in the river, the number of oysters in the bay. By the time the oyster population collapsed in September of 2012, Dan had already been trying to sound the alarm for months. I actually sent a request to the three governors of the states to please get together and do something 
to help improve the flows to Apalachicola Bay in, in June of that year. And three months later is when that collapse actually happened. The state asked for a federal disaster declaration, which it eventually got a year later, in August of 2013. Around that same time, news came out that the governor of Florida, Rick Scott, had decided to take the matter to the Supreme Court. How the water woes of oystermen have ended up in the highest court in the country. That's ahead. And there is the sponsorship music. You remember it, right? Now, maybe you've seen a chef posing in a magazine recently, and you notice them wearing a certain ball cap. And if you look closer at that ball cap, you'll see something familiar. In nice script, you'll read our tagline, make cornbread, not war. The maker of those hats with the Southern Foodways Alliance slogans on them, Billy Reed out of Florence, Alabama. He also makes some damn beautiful suits and a whole range of other clothes for men and women. You can find hats and more at BillyReed, that's R-E-I-D, dot com. Where we left off, we were talking about how Georgia's water use might be impacting Apalachicola Bay and the oyster population there. Well, in the fall of 2013, Florida Governor Rick Scott decided that was a matter for the Supreme Court. Acting. Governor Scott saying the state of Florida is now going to sue the state of Georgia over its increased consumption of water that is limiting flow to the Apalachicola River. This is where... If you think that sounds like a big deal, get this. The states of Florida, Georgia, and Alabama have been fighting over this water for 24 years, in and out of the courts with no solid resolution. It's become known as the Tri-State Water Wars. Here's Governor Scott on WTXL News in October of 2013. Uh, we've negotiated with them. Uh, they've not negotiated in good faith. Uh, they've kept our water. It's been going on for decades. Uh, Florida's going to file suit to make sure this stops. Last month, the Supreme Court announced that it would hear the case. Here's a juicy quote from the lawsuit. Florida cannot and should not suffer injury in order to satiate Georgia's unrelenting thirst. Let me start with, we certainly feel for the oystermen in Apalachicola Bay. The losses of the oysters there are real and it has in fact affected them. Uh, the truth of the matter is, Metro Atlanta and the state of Georgia are not to blame. This is Catherine Zitch with the Atlanta Regional Commission. She manages water planning for the 15-county region of Metro Atlanta. When there is not enough rain, there is not enough water in Apalachicola Bay, and it has more to do with water supply from a natural mother nature perspective than from the usage in Metro Atlanta or the state of Georgia. It paints a good story, and it's easy to blame a city for the woes, but in fact, Metro Atlanta, even in a very dry year, only consumes 2 to 3% of the water that flows across the state line. So our impact is not enough to make this difference in Apalachicola Bay. Dan Tonsmeyer, the Apalachicola Riverkeeper, says that figure Catherine just mentioned, that they only use 2% of the water that flows across the state line, Dan says that's misleading. It factors in both the high and low flow periods. During the dry times, when the river flow is lower, he says Atlanta can draw much more than that. But that said, he says what's going on with the bay isn't all their fault. So I, I don't point the finger at the Atlanta Regional Commission or the city of Atlanta. It's, it's the cumulative impacts. If you're, if you're down at the bottom of the basin looking up, 
it's a sum of all those uh, uses and, and impacts. And singling out one foe gets in the way of a solution. On the day we spoke, Dan was driving up to Lake Lanier at the top of the watershed for a meeting with Atlanta officials, farmers, Apalachicola oystermen, all of the stakeholders that have a relationship with this water. They've been meeting for five years. But ever since this newest round of litigation, they've been stymied. The smartest way for us to do this is to try to sit down and work it out collaboratively. And I know now for certain that that will not happen as long as there's litigation. If we aren't able to resolve the water issue and we go into a 10-year litigation, I think the future of Apalachicola Bay is, will be a serious question mark. So what does a town built on oystering do when the oysters are disappearing and one of the causes is not in their hands or likely to be resolved anytime soon? The problems in the bay aren't just a result of the water battles. It's likely a number of factors, everyone says, compounded by the lack of fresh water. In the wake of the oil spill in 2010, oystermen had a free-for-all harvesting in the bay because local officials thought the oil was headed their way, might as well get the oysters before they died, but then the oil didn't come. That started what's become a growing chorus of worries about over-harvesting. That was the topic freshest on the minds of many oystermen at an early October meeting in Apalachicola. That and the possible closure of the bay. Men with scraggly beards and ball caps sit next to older gentlemen in suspenders and younger husband and wife teams all on metal folding chairs. This meeting was called by the Oyster Recovery Team, Carl Haven's University of Florida group. They wanted to survey seafood workers about what's going on. And man, did they ever get an earful about who was taking what out of the bay. You've got oysterman right now who goes out there and catches 10 pound bags of something. And I can't catch a half a bag. If something's not done with this bait, it's going to destroy itself within a year or two. I can assure you that. It's not coming back on its own. But everybody in here are oysters. We know people who we all make fun of because of what they keep. We know that there's people out there that throw all the way down to this. Well, those people out there doing the oil spill because the county commission let them, tonging straight into the boat, taking everything, the shell, everything. If, if the boys know and the girls know they can go out there and catch this and bring it in and get that paycheck every day, they're going to keep doing that. The dominant feeling among most of the folks I talked to at this meeting was that the bay had to be closed. Now this is coming from people for whom the closure would mean putting themselves out of work. That's how serious they think the problems are. So far, though, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, that's the state agency in charge of the decision, they've chosen to keep it open. Charlotte Polis and her husband have been oystering here for 30 years, and she thinks the bay has to be closed. For it to recover, to heal, and to what little ones are out there, that to give them time to grow. But that is if, you know, they can get some help in here to help the oyster people to make a living, you know, why this is being done. Because they, there's no way they can just close it down and just leave them hanging. You, you can't do that. And that's the rub. After the meeting, I stand with Charlotte outside while the University of Florida staff serve up pulled pork sandwiches to the seafood workers. She tells me she's just turned 50. She should be thinking about saving for retirement. Instead, the last time she and her husband went out oystering, they barely found enough to fill a salad bowl. They don't want to lose their house, she tells me. 
She prays about it every day, she says, and gestures towards the heavens. So in a county of only about 10,000 people, what do you do when potentially 1,800 of them, the licensed oystermen, are put out of work and there's basically no other industry to employ them? That's something Smokey Parrish thinks about a lot. You know, you don't want all your eggs in the basket of seafood and Deepwater Horizon really taught us a big lesson about that. Smokey manages a shrimp house in Apalachicola and is a third-generation seafood worker. Just gets in your blood, he says. Alongside the six-point buck's head mounted to his office wall is a hand-lettered sign that reads, Shrimp Pimp. He's also been a Franklin County commissioner for the past eight years. He ran for that office because he was worried about development in what's still a rural part of Florida. Uh, we don't have shopping malls here. We don't have Walmarts. We don't have 10-story condominiums such as Destin or Panama City Beach or, or some of the other places around, around the state and around the country. It, it's unique here. But outside of marketing that uniqueness to tourists, finding other alternatives for seafood workers is a bit of a stretch here. The very thing that makes Franklin County still have a viable seafood industry is also the thing that makes it hard to welcome other industries in. Anything, any job or manufacturer that would like to come here, if there's any possibility that there could be a, a downturn of our water quality and, and a contamination of our environment, our estuary, then, then we don't allow it to come in. But with the troubled oyster population, Smokey says everything else feels like it's hanging in the balance. Not only because so many people are oystermen, but because of the role the oysters play in the ecosystem of the bay. They are key to the health of everything else. If you lose the oyster industry here, you lose everything. I mean, because it maintains the water quality. It is the natural filter provided by the good Lord above to maintain the water quality here, which allows this, thing, this estuary to thrive the way it does. Then you start losing your flounder and your crabs and your redfish and your trout, and you're basically going to have a dead bay here, as we've seen in other parts of the country. This fall, Florida announced $4.5 million in funding for what they call hand-shelling operations. Basically, baby oysters will only grow if they can latch onto oyster shells or some other hard surface on the bottom of the bay. Over the years of harvesting and storms, that bottom in Apalachicola Bay has degraded. Some oystermen think that's as big of a problem as the lack of fresh water, the lack of material for baby oysters to grow on. So, this state funding will go to hiring oystermen to put boatfuls of shells back in the bay. But Carl Haven says his oyster recovery team figures that about a thousand acres of material is needed for the bay to recover in the next few years. Right now, there's funding for only a few hundred acres of that. Smokey says there's precedent that this kind of thing works. We lost a, a lot of our oyster beds here in 1985 as a result of a hurricane damaging all the oyster bars. We closed the whole bay down for like two years. Everybody survived. Was it fun? Absolutely not. But sometimes it's things that we have to do in order to maintain our industry. And at certain times, uh, we have to make sacrifices and to allow, it, to allow it to continue. The idea is that closing the bay for a period and not harvesting oysters would allow the ecosystem to recover and the oysters to come back. A lot of things are different now than in 1985, though. For one, the water wars. But there's also a sense among some people who've been here their whole lives that the place is already shifting. The culture has already started to change. Well, we used to be strictly wholesale. Then we went wholesale retail. Now we're wholesale retail on a raw bar. 
At Lynn's Quality Oysters out in East Point, they serve them raw on the half shell, baked, fried, and even with mozzarella and tomato sauce, like an oyster version of a margarita pizza. Lynn Martinez family has been running this place since 1971, but the restaurant part only opened about six months ago. We used to sell them by the tractor trailer loads, now we're selling them by the dozen. So, just have to change with the times. Lynn's mother owned this oyster house before she did. Lynn can remember a time when they processed thousands a day. It's gone from that to where Lynn had to turn to retail to stay afloat. She says you could feel kind of helpless with all the things that are beyond your control. I mean, you got the the battle with Georgia ongoing, and it has been for 20-some-odd years. We're not getting anywhere there. And I have a raw bar in there, but I voted to close the bay because I know if I want to continue to have that raw bar, I've got to have that oyster, and if if we don't, make some changes, that oyster's not going to be there. But even the bay's closure is not in her hands. Now, Lynn's family has been through tough times before. They completely rebuilt after Hurricane Kate in 1985 and Hurricane Dennis in 2007. And Lynn says the oyster business has been good to her family. It helped her put her daughter through college. When her mother was selling the place years ago, Lynn hesitated but decided to take it over from her. And, I, you know, I, I really don't regret it. I regret how everything has transpired and how everything's changed. Would I do it again? Maybe. If I could see, if I knew what I know now, definitely not. But um, you, just, you, don't, you just don't ever know what the future holds. One day at a time. I heard from a bunch of folks. Mother Nature is very forgiving. This bay has waned before, watermen tell me. And she'll wax again, given the right rest and restoration. But who knows how the politics will play out between Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. And then there's an even bigger unknown, the one of climate change. One of the projections is that droughts could get longer and water even more precious. What's happening in Apalachicola could be a vision of the future in many maritime communities. But for now, oysters are still all over the signage of Apalachicola and on its airwaves on Oyster Radio. And Franklin County is going to fight like hell to make sure they're still in its bay. Music for this episode was provided by Sunday Ent, Computer vs. Banjo, Tyson Rogers, Peripheral, and Diagram Collective. Our theme is by Mr. Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. You can find oral histories with Apalachicola oystermen dating back almost a decade, plus photos and more on our website. That's southernfoodways.org gravy. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... There's the sponsor's music, and this time we are the sponsors, the Southern Foodways Alliance, which is this rad organization that you can become a member of. So members are eligible to attend our events throughout the year, and those events are get-togethers of thinkers, cooks, and eaters to talk about things like pop culture and Southern food. This is not a dry academic environment. It's the kind of place you get handed a to-go cocktail for your bus ride out to rural Mississippi for a catfish dinner after a presentation about who's included and who's excluded at the Southern Table. You can learn more about membership at our website, southernfoodways.org. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, a bar 
that's only open one morning a week. It took a while before she uh, adjusted to drinking and dancing at 8 o'clock in the morning. You know. Subscribe on iTunes or find us on Stitcher to make sure you get that one. You can also find us on SoundCloud if that's your listening method of choice. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. This is Gravy. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. <laughs>